11.30 to 3.30 is our annual picnic. Uh, sign up. Make sure you signed up so we have a good head count for uh, food and other things. This is a good time. We go out there. We have an enjoyable time. We play some games. We have volleyball, pickleball, a uh, couple of other uh, uh, th- activities and enjoy a lot of good food and getting to know everybody in the church. So that's uh, su- Saturday and then Sunday night. Be sure to be here for the event with the Jensa event with Mike Makovsky. All right, <clears throat> before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Uh, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time that we have to come together this evening and to focus upon your word, for your word is a clear source of stability for us and tells us that you have declared the end from the beginning and that you are in charge of history, that no matter what may happen within history, no matter how chaotic things may get in our own individual lives or in nations, nevertheless, we know that you are in control. Father, help us to focus upon you, and as believers have the stability from your word to be able to communicate that the only source of hope is in you and to communicate that to those around us. May we be uh, actively seeking to opportunities to give the gospel to those we come in contact with. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, just a couple of things to let you know what's going on sort of in the uh, evil cosmic system around us. Our uh, uh, lovely mayor... For those of you who don't know, our lovely mayor has, uh, in retaliation to the pastors, notice she isn't going after Orthodox rabbis or uh, imams at all, even though they're as hostile to her homosexual agenda as anybody else. But she has subpoenaed, gone to court to subpoena the the sermons and transcripts and media of sermons from uh, a variety of pastors in the Houston area who have been fighting her on this city ordinance thing. At the same time, two weeks ago, the city secretary was deposed. There's a trial on this that's supposed to take place in January, and the city secretary was deposed and basically made it very clear that both the city attorney and the mayor were were in complete violation of the city charter when they uh, made an end run to cancel, violate the petition uh, that had been or that had been um, signed, and to invalidate many of those those signatures, and the, the city secretary has been the city secretary for 42 years, so that takes her back to 1972, and uh, she said that never in her 42 years in her position has she been interfered with by the by the mayor or the city attorney like she has in this particular case so the uh, uh that really shows how how egregious their violation of the law has been and then for the mayor to seek uh the, the transcripts and sermons of pastors is a blatant act of intimidation and is an, just an obscene violation of the Constitution. And it ought to be clear to anybody that the agenda of too many people on the left is not freedom. Uh, 
I hate to say this, but in my experience, I think that one of the key characteristics of objective citizens of this nation probably applies to some liberals, but I see that this applies to conservatives most, is that from the left there is a, a tyrannical trend to suppress opinions that do not agree with political correctness. And on the right, in contrast, there is the willingness to fight and die for the freedom of speech, for the freedom of belief, and for the freedom of opinions of those they radically disagree with. I do not hear this so much from the left, that they are willing to go fight and die for the beliefs of people on the far right that they disagree with. They don't really, at the very core of their being, it seems, believe in the First Amendment. And this bodes badly for this nation and for us. And we as believers need to be aware that this battle is taking place right here in Houston. This isn't the mayor of New York. This isn't the mayor of Baltimore. This is the mayor of Houston, Texas, who is at the forefront of this. So this is just, she probably won't get away with it. Courts will throw it out, but it is... It is a, a portent of what is coming. Speaking of which, we're still talking about the uh, tribulation and the Antichrist, and this is the kind of behavior we can expect of any type of Antichrist figure based upon Scripture. Tonight, what I want to do in terms of our study on dispensations is try to bring our study of the tribulation to a close in looking at the great end-time event, which is the uh, campaign. It's not one battle. It's a series of battles the campaign of Armageddon. And so we'll work through that as we approach the final part of our study where we were uh, looking the last two or three times at the key people that we have in the uh, tribulation period. We have to know who the players are. We talked about the Antichrist. We talked about the false prophet. We talked about the 144,000. And we talked about two witnesses that are identified uh, that appear near the beginning of the first half of the tribulation, and they are a faithful witness to God, to the truth in the, in the tradition of Elijah and Moses. And the miracles that they perform are very similar uh, to those of Elijah and, and uh, Moses, and they fulfill the prophecies from Zechariah chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. Now, when we look at the tribulation, what I want to do is give us an overview of the tribulation, There's two parts, the first half, the second half, three and a half years each. In the first half, you have the first two series of judgments. You have the seven seal judgments. And the seventh seal judgment is when that seventh seal is open, it reveals seven more judgments, and those are the trumpet judgments. So the uh, each of the period is approximately is 42 months, and so the Seal judgments will take place over approximately half that time, 21 months, and then the trumpet judgments will take place over the the second half. I'm not going to drill down on all of those uh, details, but that gives you the overview. The rapture of the church ends the church age. There will be a period of transition before the Antichrist, the prince who is to come, will sign a, tr- a treaty with Israel and that is what starts the stopwatch for Israel going again. And so that works its way down through the last seven years. If we look at the whole scope of the tribulation, 
Here we have in this chart the seven seals and the seven trumpet judgments in the first half and then the seven bold judgments in the second half. It should encourage us, and I think this is one aspect of prophecy. It, you see it clearly in the book of Daniel, and I think it's clearly there in the book of Revelation, is that the believers who read that at the beginning, the believers who experienced what Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced, saw their world come apart at the seams. They saw uh, all of the um, loss of their, their parents' generation, uh, many of that, their generation, that is the generation of Daniel, were taken into captivity. You had uh, economic chaos. You had uh, loss of family. It, it, every, everything fell apart, and yet God was in control. And that's the underlying message in all of these prophetic scenarios is that even though there is chaos and horror, God is in control, and therefore believers can relax, even though there will be an uh, 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 innumerable number of believers who were martyred during the tribulation period. Martyrdom is not something to be feared as a believer because that's just how we get transitioned into heaven. Uh, We're not to seek martyrdom, but martyrdom is going to take place in the tribulation period like it has never taken place in history before. And as believers, we, we see that this happens in, in uh, our own time, it happens mostly in countries that are dominated by, by Islam. It happens in a few other places, but mostly there where there's great oppression of believers. But they can relax and have hope and have faith because uh, uh, God is in control. So we go through the seal judgments. I'm, not, I'm just going to go through some of these slides. We have a lot of slides I put in here tonight, and I want to make sure that we just... Go through them. So, what happens in the first half? First half, we see that Israel is in the land. Israel is in the land, but they're unregenerate. They have to be restored to the land. That is why we believe that what we've been seeing since the mid part, if not the early part of the 19th century, is the beginning of God's movement to restore the Jews to the land. And initially, they're restored as an unregenerate people. And then the temple will be rebuilt either uh, near the end of the church age, it's possible, during the transition period, or it may not be rebuilt until after uh, the tribulation begins, after that peace treaty is signed. We don't know. As I pointed out last time, it doesn't need to be finished by then. The temple where Jesus worshipped, the Herodian temple, was incomplete. It wasn't finished for another 12 years or so after uh, after Jesus' death on the cross. So, but once the, that area is uh, consecrated and sacrifices can begin, sacrifices will continue until the Antichrist puts an end to them halfway through the tribulation. The seal judgments are the first set of three judgments that occur in the tribulation, and each concludes with a judgment that reveals seven more. So they are successive. Some people try to say that they overlap, but they are successive judgments. They're a series. The first four seal judgments are known as the first horsemen, uh, or excuse me, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they are the beginning of the wrath of God directed toward 
mankind. This is described in Revelation chapter 6. If you look at the overall layout of of Revelation chapters 4 through 19, that's the course of of the uh, tribulation, Uh, Revelation 4 and 5 give us the prelude, the heavenly scene, and the seven-scroll document is given to uh, Jesus, who then begins to open the seals. That's the beginning of these judgments. So they are properly termed the wrath of the Lamb. Fourth point, the rise of the Antichrist takes place during the interim period and the ten-nation confederacy. What the picture that we see in Revelation is that this is a worldwide warfare, a world war. It is not something that is restricted to a war between Muslims and uh, Jews, and that is going to be a dimension of it. And, of course, Armageddon brings a focal point. God brings a focal point at the end of the tribulation to where it always is, and that is Jerusalem and the land of Israel, but it's a worldwide conflagration. Uh, this is one of the reasons I have a problem. Today, We, it is an example of, and, and you, you study the material long enough, you go back into the early 19th century, people want to identify current government structures and nations with what they're interpreting in the Scripture, and we must avoid that. At, at all costs. And what we see today is because of the rise of terrorism and the rise of radical Islam is this desire to try to read that into the scripture and that makes it a regional conflict. And this is not a regional conflict. Now I know that some people will disagree with, with my contention there, but but that doesn't mean it's not true. It reduces it to just a regional conflict and uh, this is a worldwide conflict. Uh, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists are sealed in Revelation chapter 7, and then we're told about the, the in the seventh seal judgment that there are now seven tr- more judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and then the seventh trumpet judgment will contain that final series of bold judgments. Last thing that develops in this period, I'll point out, is the ministry of these two witnesses that takes place, and they're special witnesses to the Jewish people to Jerusalem and to Israel, and they will be martyred by the Antichrist at the halfway point, midpoint through the tribulation. Now here we have the trumpet judgments. Trumpet judgments involve a lot of uh, things that take place in the heavens. There's fiery hail that comes upon the earth in the first trumpet judgment. There's a burning mountain that goes into the sea. In the second trumpet judgment, there's uh, waters are turned uh, bitter. The sun, moon, and the stars are darkened again in uh, the fourth trumpet judgment. Uh, And then starting with the fifth judgment, there we see the introduction of the demonic in a way that it's never never takes place before. There's the release of demon, lo, demonic locusts that from, uh, from the abyss. And then with the fifth trumpet judgment and the sixth trumpet judgment, you have a two, 200 million uh, de- demon army that is released from under the Euphrates. Hal Lindsey tried to equate that to the uh, Chai Coms coming across from China but a close reading of the text indicates that they are a demonic army that is released. And so this brings us to a point that I keep making is that at the end of human history, uh, 
the two great intelligent creations of God, the angels and mankind, uh, who have rebelled against God, judgment is finally brought to bear on both of these creatures, and they become intertwined there at the end of the tribulation, especially from this period, the fifth trumpet, on. I believe demons and angels become clearly visible upon the earth. So we have the uh, episode of the little scroll that's described in Revelation 10, 9 through 11, which is uh, contains prophecy related to the middle and second half of the tribulation. And uh, biblical prophecy is considered good and sweet, but the judgment, uh, when, they, when that scroll is taken, the judgments are, are bitter. The scroll is bitter. Uh, there's a head wound. The Antichrist is killed, and then he is raised from the dead. He's brought back to life in Revelation 13, 3. Uh, Satan has a temper tantrum. Uh, he's cast out of heaven, and he's cast to the earth. And this time, I believe, was when all the demons truly become visible upon the upon the earth. And the uh, Antichrist is raised from the dead. And so now he makes a claim to be the true Messiah. He's been raised from the dead, and he is going to uh, establish his, uh, his worship in the temple in Jerusalem. He, um, under the fifth point, he consolidates his stranglehold on the West, and this shows it's a worldwide conflagration. He is the, he, he brings back the old Roman Empire. It's a revival of the Roman Empire. His nationality isn't as significant as some people want to make it because he comes out of the West, and he fulfills that revival of the Roman, of the Roman Empire. Uh, six, there's a death and the death and resurrection of the two witnesses, and they are taken to heaven, and the abomination of desolation takes place. All of this is approximately in the midpoint of the tribulation, and then the false prophet, uh, who's the leader of the false religious system, will deceive the masses, and he will instigate the mark of the beast in Revelation 13:16 to 18, where it says, "No one in the whole world—that's the global." Uh, the global focus of the Antichrist empire. It's not something that's just in the Middle East. It's global. No one in the world can buy or sell. All commerce is dependent upon loyalty to the first beast. And there will be an increase in persecution uh, of the Jews. Uh, Today, and I need to send this link out to everybody, Uh, someone sent me a link today uh, to a video where these uh, a variety of Jewish college students from places like that one might suspect, like Berkeley, Kent State, uh, University of Connecticut, University of Maryland and Baltimore, a number of other universities where they describe the level of anti-Semitism that they are experiencing, the hatred uh, that they are experiencing on university campuses throughout this country. And this is developing more and more. This is just a precursor, I'm afraid, to coming attractions. Now that brings us to the second half of the tribulation, the second three-and-a-half-year period, the bold judgments. And it is in these bold judgments that everything is intensified. We've crossed the midpoint, the rise of the Antichrist, and now there are going to be these horrible diseases. I believe that at, from this point on, no one responds to the gospel. From my reading of Revelation, it's not that they can't, it's that they won't. They are, 
They're set in their negative volition, just as Pharaoh hardened his heart that after, uh, after about the third or fourth plague, he was not going to change his mind. It's not that he could not, but that he would not. He had set, he had hardened himself so much. I think that's the case here in the last three and a half years. Uh, the seas are turned into blood, which impacts all uh, uh, fishing, commerce. The uh, rivers are turned into blood, which wipes out your freshwater sources. There's going to be a scorching on the earth from the sun. Uh, there's darkness uh, upon the throne of the beast. The uh, Euphrates River dries up. Uh, there's earthquake and hail upon the earth as we reach this final stage at the campaign of Armageddon just prior to the second coming. That's Revelation. You want to understand biblical prophecy? It's seven years divided in half, two three-and-a-half-year periods, uh, seal judgment, trumpet judgments in the first half, uh, the bowl judgments in the second half, culminating in the campaign of the Battle of Armageddon. Armageddon has become a metaphor in our secular, biblically illiterate culture where any sort of cataclysm is identified as Armageddon. But the Bible says this is the end game. This is when the Antichrist brings certain armies. Armageddon is just not just any crisis or any calamity or uh, nuclear war or anything like that. It is very specific how the Bible describes it. And it relates to the gathering of Israel. In Micah chapter 2, verses 12, God tells Jacob, and when he uses that term Jacob, it usually is in relationship to uh, to Israel as coming out of or in rebellion against God. He says, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. And, this, and uh, he says, I will put them together like sheep in the fold. This emphasizes the fact that God is going to protect the Jewish remnant during this time. Uh, there, I pointed this out last time. There is this this myth, this calumny that is passed around within the Jewish community that Christians believe that that Jesus that that Christians want all the Jews back in the land because during this uh, the tribulation uh, they're going to be wiped out, and that's not the motivation. The Jews will return to the land. Two thirds of the Jews are probably killed, but it's not just two thirds of the Jews that are killed. It's to probably two-thirds of the whole earth's population as well because in the seal judgments, you have a quarter of the earth's population dies. In the trumpet judgments, and those, are, those two ser- series are in the first half, in the trumpet judgments, a third of what's left dies. That means that by the midpoint of the tribulation, as Revelation describes it, half of the earth's population has died. By the time you get to Armageddon, I would guess at least half of what remains will be gone so that percentage-wise uh, no f- fewer Jews or no more Jews are killed or lost during the tribulation period that are killed during the tribulation period than, than non-Jews. It is a time of incredible loss of life. God will protect the remnant. He gathers them uh, and will put them like a sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture, and they will be noisy with men. So God will protect them. This is done because there are those who will respond to what Jesus said, 
that when they see the sign of the abomination of desolation, in Ju- those in, who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. Notice it doesn't say all Jews. It doesn't say those who are in Galilee. He says those who are in Jerusalem and Judea, those are the ones who flee to the mountains. And we'll see the reason for that. And they will, and then this is described in Revelation 12, 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she might be nourished for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years and 42 months. That's the second half of the tribulation period. Revelation 12, 14 says that uses this, talking about the same imagery, two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. This is a picture of flight. The woman is Israel in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times, that's one times is two and a half a time, that's three and a half years, from the presence of the serpent. So she is being attacked by the serpent. It is at the end of that time that the Bible depicts that Israel will turn back to God in repentance and accept her Messiah and cry out for her Messiah to deliver her. In Zechariah 12.10, God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is an Old Testament prophecy given by the given to the prophet Zechariah. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Now, how in the world could they interpret that apart from understanding that phrase, he on whom they have pierced, to refer to the crucifixion of Jesus because of his claim to be the Messiah. They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like they bitter weeping over a firstborn. That is a depiction of their repentance, their turning to God at the end of the tribulation period. This is also seen in passages like Romans eleven twenty-five to 27, which talks about the fact that it is uh, at this time that after the... Um, Fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Then in verse 26, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This references the coming of the Messiah to rescue the surviving remnant of Israel at the end of the tribulation period. It's a fulfillment of God's covenant, which takes us back to the uh, Abrahamic covenant described in Genesis 15, uh, 18 where God promised to Abraham to give him all the land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. Now, if you look at this map, there's a lot of debate over just how this land is extended. But if we come over here, now, there's there's a lot of debate over this. And over here, just right here, you can see the delta for the Nile. And off to the left of that, you have the Nile River. Some people think that the Nile River is the is the river of the covenant. That doesn't fit the terminology because of the, the Hebrew words that are used for river. It is most likely, the for a lot of different reasons, I'm not going to go into now, the Wadi El Arish, which is located here in the Sinai. The Sinai was never considered part of the promised land. So the Wadi El Arish coming down through south of the Negev would form the river of Egypt. And then everything from there over to the Euphrates. Well, look how far the Euphrates goes. Uh, 
all the way down here through what is now modern uh, Iraq. So this covers all the territory of uh, the modern kingdom of Jordan, as well as about half of modern Iraq, all the way up here to Damascus. Here's Damascus. Much of this is serious. So the I believe all of this territory here was part of that original land grant to uh, to Abraham. It's important to note, too, in light of the ongoing conflict, here's Jerusalem on the west side, and here's Babylon on the east side. And from the time of Genesis 11, as we studied when we went through Genesis, there's this battle between Jerusalem and and Babylon. So this is the um, the territory that God has given to Abraham and to the, his descendants through Isaac and Jacob, and this has never been owned or controlled by the Jew, by the Jewish people. Now, this is what's what's at stake. You have Babylon becomes a central figure again, and I believe it's a literal Babylon. For many years, using allegorical interpretation. A lot of biblical scholars, some dispensationalists, many dispensationalists, took references to Babylon as being a code word for Rome. But there's no indication anywhere in Scripture that that is true. And for the last 20 or 30 years, a lot of research has been done in relation to the use of these these term, geographic terms in history. And I believe that that uh, you know under Saddam Hussein there was an attempt to resurrect Babylon. But I believe under the Antichrist worldwide kingdom, Babylon will once again take its place as an economic center. Now, we're a long way from that right now, uh, but that doesn't mean that it won't be restored in the end times. Revelation sixteen fourteen talks about these three uh, frog-like demons that uh, come out. They're called spirits of demons. In Revelation 16, 14, they perform signs which go out to the kings of the earth. Again, a global concept, bringing together all of the kings of the earth. And the whole world brings them where? Brings them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. This is introduces us biblically to that end campaign, which is the campaign of Armageddon. Now, here's a map of Israel, and we're going to see that there are eight stages to this campaign, culminating in the destruction of the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet. They're sent directly to the lake of fire, and Israel will be reestablished in the land and rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. There's, first of all, a gathering of the armies of the Antichrist here, number one, at the valley of Har Megiddo. Har is the Hebrew word for mountain. Megiddo is the name of a major uh, town that sat astride a pass in the Carmel Ridge overlooking this, this great valley that extends from this only natural harbor in Israel right here where Haifa is located today. It's the only deep water port in uh, on the western end of the Mediterranean, the only deep water port in Israel. And this is where uh, the U.S. fleet comes in and they get their oil and their supplies and everything and can handle uh, that kind of a navy. It's perfect. When you stand there on the Carmel Ridge, you can see it that as, as ships come into that harbor, they can offload supplies, 
materiel, personnel, everything needed for war that is then trucked southeast onto the Valley of Armageddon as the staging area for the war that is to come. It isn't in the Valley of Armageddon that the war takes place. That's the staging area from which it will uh, develop. second thing that happens is that there will be a destruction, physical destruction of Babylon as part of this war. Uh, This final campaign is the result of a war that's been going on for some time that has drawn the Antichrist into the Middle East, which again indicates that he's not there originally. He's drawn there because of of, uh, the warfare that has taken place between, I believe, the king of the north, which is probably a Muslim-type army, and the king of the south. A lot of debate how Ezekiel 38 and 39 fits into this. I'm still not convinced. Uh, I think the best argument is that uh, Ezekiel 38 takes place in the first half of the tribulation, Ezekiel 39, the second half of the tribulation. Again, that's a totally different uh, issue, but I'm, uh, I think that's pretty well set. Uh, destruction of Babylon, then the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem falls to the Antichrist. And then following that, the uh, armies of the Antichrist uh, are destroyed at Basra. Armies of the Antichrist are destroyed at Basra, and then uh, at that time, as they are, uh, uh, are the army, uh, excuse me, the armies of the Antichrist, part of that slide dropped off, but it's they gather at Basra, which is where the Jews have fled. They will see what's going on. They will see the uh, uh, abomination of desolation, and they flee down across uh, the Judean desert. This is really barren, hostile territory. And across south of the Dead Sea into the area of Jordan around uh, Petra and Basra in, in Jordan, which is terrain where they can hide and they will be protected. Uh, it is when the Jews are there that they will be, they will call upon the name of the Lord and that indicates the national regeneration of Israel. The people who flee are already individually saved. They wouldn't be responding to Jesus' command to leave uh, Judea and to flee to the mountains if they didn't believe him and believe that he was the Messiah. So they're individually saved. The people who flee mostly will be individually saved, and then corporately they will call upon the name of the Lord uh, from Basra. And then this is followed by the second coming of Christ uh, when he comes and rescues them, and then they will march to Jerusalem with the tribe of Judah in the vanguard, and they will end the fighting at the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, and then there will be the victory ascent up the Mount of Olives. Now, in the next 20 minutes, I'm going to go through as much of this as I can to help us to understand this in the Bible. Uh, it's going to go fast. I'm not going to go through every verse that I put up on the screen, but if you're taking notes, you can write down the references and take a look at them later. And, of course, the slides will be put up on the Internet afterwards. So what we see here in this map of the Middle East, here is Babylon, and Babylon is going to be attacking to the west. Part of this army is going to be attacking from the west, and it is at Megiddo that the Antichrist will come in and will offload his soldiers and his equipment in preparation for this great battle. So here we have the gathering of the armies of the Antichrist in this area as the staging ground for uh, 
for the beginning of the campaign. It's located here on the map. We see Megiddo located here. This whole area, here's Mount Carmel located here from this little point running all the way down uh, to here just below uh, Mount Gilboa. This whole area is just a long, tall ridge overlooking a valley. The valley is called the Jezreel Valley. Here's a topographical uh, map looking at it. It runs the distance here, uh, and that is the area where this staging area takes place. These are a couple of uh, pictures taken from uh, the ruins at Megiddo. There's 27 layers of civilization that have been uncovered there. And as we look across here, this is part. We're on the, on, on the Carmel Ridge, and it sort of circles around this way and extends up across here. But this flat area out to the front is all the lower part of the valley of Megiddo. Here are some of the excavations there. And this is a wide-angle shot taken from the historic location on Mount Carmel. You can see these two angled concrete strips right here. That is an underground ID, uh, uh, IAF, Israel Air Force Base. All you see is the runways. But this is the wide open area. Over here is uh, Mount Tabor, and Mount Gilboa is located over here in the kind of fuzzy in the background, but you get an idea of how high the Carmel Ridge is as the Valley of Esdralon goes out before you. Napoleon said that when he saw the Valley of Esdralon, that all the armies of the earth could gather there to do battle. That's the staging area. The next thing that happens is going to be over on the Euphrates, and Babylon is going to be uh, destroyed, and this is described in various passages. In uh, Revelation chapter 17, verses 3 through 6, John states, He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven horns and seven uh, heads and ten horns. This depicts the ten-nation confederacy and all of the other imagery there. And on her name is Babylon the Great, the mother of the harlots and the abominations uh, of the earth. So there is a... Uh, significant uh, economic headquarters in Babylon. And Babylon is a description of the the whole anti-Christian army. The woman is drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. We see passages in the Old Testament like Jeremiah 50, verses 9 and 10, which gives a prediction of the destruction of, uh, of Babylon, God says, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. Babylon is is a major powerhouse, but is not the sea, it is not the capital of the Antichrist's army, but they are allied, and we're not sure how to how that relationship works. But Chaldea will be destroyed and plundered, according to verse ten. That's not the end of the Antichrist kingdom. Uh, Revelation 17.6, the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot. So the ten horns represent the Antichrist's kingdom, and they hate the the, uh, harlot, which is Babylon. shows the distinction between the two. Revelation 12.10 or 11 depict the uh, angelic part. 
uh, I, I heard uh, John says, I heard a loud voice in the heaven. Now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. Kategor there is a word for accuser. That is the Greek word that is the counterpart to Satan. Satan, it means accuser. And so it's talking, talking about that, that when Satan is thrown down to the earth and uh, Revelation 12:11, they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of the testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. So this depicts the uh, Satan and the fallen angels being thrown out of heaven as this is described in this great angelic battle in Revelation 12, 8, and 9. Revelation 18.9 gets into the more immediate description of the campaign of Armageddon. The kings of the earth who committed fornication lived luxuriously with her, that is with Babylon, will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. Now Babylon, it, it is, this is very interesting. Uh, here we have a picture of a, of a flyer done, and the headline there, if you can't read it, says, Europe in many tongues, one voice. They have taken one of the most infamous images of a building in history, the Tower of Babel, and intentionally and self-consciously used that as a symbol for the, the European Union and for its translation headquarters. This is a uh, uh, late re- Renaissance Bruegel's uh, depiction of the Tower of Babel, which on, on which the modern uh, complex for translation in, uh, I believe it's in Strasbourg, is located. And this is the EU sees itself as connected to the Tower of Babel and a resurrection of the, ta- of the Babylonian mentality. They also have depictions. Here's a Europa publication with a woman riding the beast. And... Uh, there's that the building in, located in Strasbourg again. So it's interesting how they they intentionally use this imagery for, to identify themselves. Okay, Revelation 18 says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cries out, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So this is the second stage in the battle. Other passages, Isaiah 13, 19 to 20, uh, Jeremiah 50, verse 1, and verses 39 through 40, uh, Jeremiah 51, 24, God says, Before your eyes I will repay Babylon and all who live in Babylonia for all the wrong that they have done in Zion. So there will be divine retribution at the end of the tribulation. That takes us to the third stage, the fall of Jerusalem. So the Antichrist is going to move his forces down through Samaria, what is now called the West Bank. It shouldn't be called that anymore because it's no longer the West Bank of Jordan. That's why it was called the West Bank, because Jordan was given all the land to the east of the Jordan after they conquered the, or took the land by force in the, uh, in Israel's war for independence in 1948. Uh, they were no longer the kingdom of Transjordan, which refers to the eastern side of the Jordan. So they changed the, the name to the kingdom of Jordan, and they now had an east bank and a west bank. But they lost the west bank in the 67 war. No, no country ever recognized Jordan's right to sovereignty over the west bank. 
And so now it basically becomes a, 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 a land without a country, and, but it's not the West Bank of anything anymore. So that's a misnomer. Every term you use has political, political repercussions and connotations, so it's better just to use the biblical terms. Uh, that's going to upset a lot of Arabs and Muslims, but that's life. Samaria and Judea. So he will attack Jerusalem down through Samaria, and this leads to the uh, persecution of the Jews, as described in Revelation 12, 12, and 13. Just look at verse 13. When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The male child is Jesus. The woman is Israel. So this is the increase of anti-Semitism in the end times. And Revelation 12, 14, the uh, woman is going to flee into uh, the desert and where she is going to spend three and a half years protected by God. And the serpent is going to chase her. And the serpent, of course, is the devil and try to uh, completely destroyed, but the earth helped the woman, the land, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So the Antichrist armies will be defeated, uh, it seems, by the terrain. Now, here is a depiction of, of uh, modern Jerusalem. We're look, we're st- I'm standing on Mount Scopus when I took this picture. This is the Mount of Olives to the left here. This is the Temple Mount. You can see the various uh, hills surrounding uh, Jerusalem. Over here, you can barely see a little white space. There's a flag flying there. That, that's um, called the Hill of Evil Council. Uh, historically, it goes back to uh, the evil council that was given to, uh, to Rehoboam, which caused him to increase the taxation on the northern kingdom and caused the, re- the, the re- tax revolt which split the kingdom. You'll never guess what that building is up there. That's the UN headquarters on the Hill of Evil Council. And they don't think God has a sense of humor. So Zechariah tells us a lot about what happens, that God is going to, uh, God is going to bring judgment upon, uh, mankind through Jerusalem. And let me go back a slide. God says in Zechariah 12:2, "Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around, and when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah." That's why Jesus said, "Those in Judea need to flee." It shall happen in that day, verse three says, "That I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will be cut to pieces." You hear this verse quoted a lot in reference to the modern uh, Israel-Arab conflict. This specifically applies to what happens in, at the end times around the battle, the campaign of Armageddon, not what's going on now. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it, Zechariah 12.3. This is what happens in the end times. The whole world seeks to destroy Jerusalem and to destroy Israel. Zechariah 14.1 through 3 tells us even more. The day of the Lord is coming. And in verse 2, I'll gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city will be taken. So in this third stage, the Antichrist takes Jerusalem. And it's horrible. The houses are going to be rifled. The women ravished. Half the city will go into captivity. 
but the remnant of the people should not be caught. So there's a remnant that's left inside Jerusalem during, during this time. Verses 4 and 5 of that chapter, In that day I'll strike every horse with confusion and rider with madness. I believe that because of all the other things that happened in the various judgments, that all modern technology and modern weaponry is no longer functional, and we're going to be back with bows and arrows and horses. Um, Verse 6, In that day I'll make the governors of Judah like a firepan in the woodpile. That is, they're going to start this conflagration. Like a fiery torch in the sheaves, they'll devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem will be inhabited again in her own place. No matter how bad it gets, Jerusalem will not be destroyed. So when the Iranians are mouthing their threats of nuclear war, I know it's never going to happen. They are not going to be able to destroy Jerusalem. We don't have to, as Christians, we can be confident. We don't have to worry about some sort of nuclear conflagration from Iran or anybody else because that doesn't fit the scenario that God has described for us. Zechariah 12.7, the Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. So God saves Judah first. And I'm going to go ahead and skip through these. And it's um, and at the battle campaign of Armageddon, God says, I will destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Then we come to the fourth point. The Antichrist marches to Petra in pursuit of the Jews. So this depicts their movement south across the Judean wilderness down to Petra, which is now in Jordan. Now, in Micah 2.12, which I read earlier, it's very interesting to look at the Hebrew. Micah 2.12 says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together in, together like sheep of the fold. And the Hebrew for the sheepfold is Basra, which is a town not too far from Petra in that same area. So there's our sheepfold. So within that territory, and there are several here who are going to be going on the trip to Israel, and when we get back into Petra and we walk back through the Seek, which is the Arabic word for canyon, it's um, about a little over a mile long, and when it comes to that treasury house, which is what's depicted in this picture here, that when we come in, it opens up, and there's just this huge area that's open. It's very rocky, very hilly. Uh, but what's interesting is if you look at this picture, you can't see it's clear here. You see a little bit of a line here. This is like a gutter that the Nabataeans built this drainage system along this, this canyon. And they have these gutters that run the length of the canyon that they've dug out, carved out into the rock. And so if you get about an eighth of an inch of rain or a quarter of an inch of rain, which is about all they, all they get, all of that drains down into this canyon, and they've built all these, these water retrieval channels that come down into these gutters, and they run down the length of the, of the seek, and then they have these holes carved out, and they've hollowed out these mountains where they have 500,000-gallon uh, cisterns. And with, with just a small rainfall, they can fill up one of those water systems. In our love for archaeology and history, we're rebuilding these water systems. So by the time the tribulation occurs, these systems will work again. They had broken down. And so this is coming together in preparation for that. Isaiah 34.5 says, 
My sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom. We'll see that, that Moab and Edom were located on that Transjordan area. So this is where this fight will occur. The, Isaiah 34, 6, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood, is made overflowing with, fat, uh, with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats. For the Lord, that last line, for the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. That's describing this battle. So here we have a map. Here's uh, Jerusalem here, the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, and down here is Basra, Petra's just... Some maps identify them as the same, some as different, but this is the area that we're talking about southeast of the Dead Sea. Here's another map, of modern map of Jordan. Here's Petra, and uh, Basra is sometimes associated with Ma'an, uh, depends on the map that you're looking at and who you're talking to. Isaiah 63, 1 says, Who's this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This is a reference to the Messiah. The Messiah comes from Eden. His garments are dyed red with blood. This one who's glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And verse 2 says, Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? because he has destroyed the armies of the Antichrist in judgment. Uh, he says in verse 3, I've trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, that is, from the nations. For I am trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. This is the Lord Jesus Christ coming to destroy the Antichrist now and to bring all things to a conclusion. Now, here's a couple of shots. If you, if you head south of Jerusalem across Judah, this is what you get to see. It is a barren landscape crossing over into Jordan. This is the area around Petra. It is an area that, of course, is, looks quite hospitable and quite comfortable. It is you know, some of the most rugged territory that, that you'll see. All right, here's another shot of inside of Petra. This is some of the ancient buildings. Uh, the city of Petra had a population of about twenty to 25,000, and they had carved all of their build. Every, everything was carved out of the, uh, of the hillsides. Jeremiah 49, verses 13 through 14. For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra will become an object of horror, a reproach, a ruin, and a curse, and all its cities will become perpetual ruins. So this is predicting the end times. Gather yourselves together and come against her, rise up for battle. So what we've done is we've gone through the first four points here. The armies of the Antichrist gather at Basra, and then Israel turns to God for help. That's the fifth time. When, right before the Olivet Discourse, before Jesus went to the cross, he sat on the Mount of Olives and looked over Jerusalem and said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I want to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the key. When will Israel as a nation say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and call upon the Lord? Leviticus 26 predicts that they will at some point in the future confess their iniquity. And in verse 42, then God will remember his covenant. 
Uh, Deuteronomy 4.27 says the same thing. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. But from there you will seek the Lord, and you will find him. And in verse 30, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, he will not forsake you or destroy you. Then in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, it says, When all these things have come upon you, you've been scattered to all the nations, and you call these things to mind when you're among the nations, and you return to the Lord your God. In verse 2, you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Then what happens? Then the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion upon you. Jeremiah three thirteen through 16 says the same thing, calling upon the Israelites to turn back uh, from their iniquity against God. And God promises in Jeremiah three fifteen, I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of God and the nation shall be gathered to it. He says he'll pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, uh, Spirit of grace and supplication, God's grace upon the nation. And that it will come about after that, that he pours out his spirit uh, in the end times, Joel 2, 28 to 29. And it's at this time that you have the blood moons. This is when the scripture says that he will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Great and awesome day of the Lord is the campaign of Armageddon. And it will come that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Those are the ones who are say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Romans eleven twenty six and 27 refers to this, that at this time, this is when the deliverer comes out of Zion and will turn away ungodliness from Jerusalem. And in Zechariah 13, 1, uh, this is said that in that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. And there's going to be this earthquake that takes place in Jerusalem that splits the Mount of Olives so that the remnant of Jews that are in Jerusalem can escape as the Lord then returns through the east gate into Jerusalem to destroy the Antichrist and his armies. This is what happens at the second coming of Christ. It's depicted in Isaiah 63, 1 through 3, that he comes once again from Basra with his garments dyed uh, red, the glowing colors, as if he's trodden the wine press alone. And seventh thing that happens is he destroys the armies of the Antichrist as he comes from Petra and moves north against, uh, against Jerusalem, and he gathers all the nations, the Gentiles, and brings them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That's the Kidron Valley, most likely. It could be a little further south. There's debate over its exact location. And there, God says, I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance. By the way, the Valley of Jehoshaphat was also called the Valley of Berachah, blessing, the Valley of Barakah, for those of you who don't know Hebrew, Barakah. I will gather the nations there, and they will stand before God, and he will judge them. This is it. You all recognize Betty Riley right over her shoulder as you're looking from uh, the old city of Jerusalem straight across that valley there in the background. If it wasn't a little hazy, you could see Bethlehem. That's the valley of Jehoshaphat. 
Passages like Jeremiah 14, uh, 3 through 5, talk about the fact that Jesus will come to the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. It will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half the mountain moving north, half moving south. And you will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. We don't know where that is. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. That is just going to be tremendous. This is where it probably will be split. That is called uh, Dominus Flevit, which means the Lord wept. This is a, a chapel that was built to commemorate the Lord's weeping on the Mount of Olives. Here's another shot of the Mount of Olives. Dominus Flevit is located right down uh, in this this general area. But the Mount of Olives, this is looking at it from the north, so it will be split down the middle. And this is the Church of the Ascension up here, marking the uh, place where some believe Jesus ascended. It was somewhere on the Mount of Olives. And then there will be this victory ascent up the Mount of Olives, which is the real triumphal entry as he then goes into Jerusalem. This is uh, the Temple Mount, and over here is the Eastern Gate, and this is where uh, the Lord will come. Uh, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of, the si- of, of decision. Joel three fourteen through 17 describes this as the Lord uh, rescues Israel finally. Uh, Revelation describes it this way. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war and his eyes are a flame of fire and Upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. See how we've tied all these things together? And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him. And then skipping down to the bottom, on he has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Zechariah, Old Testament Hebrew Scripture. Sometimes Christians are criticized. You just you just believe that all the Jews are going to be wiped out. This comes from Old Testament Scripture. This is not something that, that is part of Christian Scripture. It's not New Testament. It says that a third will be left in it. It will come about in the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver and refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them and say, They are my people, and they will say, The Lord is my God. That brings us to the end of the, tribula- end of the tribulation, the end of the campaign of Armageddon, where God has rescued the surviving Jews. There will be many others who are believers, but he's rescued the remnant, and then he will establish his kingdom. So next time when we come back uh, next week, we will look at the next dispensation, which is the dispensation of the millennium or the messianic kingdom. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, look at this survey tonight to understand the end game of the tribulation and how it fits together with uh, much of the prophecy from the Old Testament, uh, which dovetails with that which is, is revealed in Revelation and in Matthew 24, that we can see that that everything is in history is moving towards a great and final 
uh, conflict and a culmination of your judgment and as well as your grace. And Father, we look forward to being witnesses of that because as church age believers, we will return with you at that time. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.